This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Welcome to Going in Circles, the live edition here on Tuesday afternoon. Today we have a a topic. It's a uh, it's a topic that people have a great deal of emotions about. It's the one thing that gets people in horse racing stirred up. And everyone has an opinion, one way or another. And that's the Triple Crown. The series of three races, starting with the Kentucky Derby, following up two weeks later with the Preakness, and three weeks later after that with the Belmont. Obviously, this year, things are all mixed up. The Belmont being the first leg, which was won by Tis the Law, at the... Um, non-Belmont-like distance of a mile and an eighth, followed up by the Derby, which will be held the first week in September. And then we have another month off before we get to the final leg of the Triple Crown Series this year, which is the Preakness, which will be held uh, the first week in October. So obviously this is not uh, a normal circumstance, and no one would... uh, would probably be lobbying to change the Triple Crown to this format. But it's a topic that, that's that been brought up a lot. It hasn't really been brought up that much lately because we've had a, a couple winners of the Triple Crown with American Pharaoh in 2015 and with uh, Justify coming back a few years later and capping his career off in winning the Belmont, being the, uh, the second um, triple Crown winner since uh, Affirmed, I guess, would be the last one before that. And we had a, a, a long drink, a long time between drinks um, that capped off with Secretariat's legendary Triple Crown run where he did what he did in the Belmont, which is the one race that everyone remembers, but Let's not forget he also set a still-standing track record in the Derby. It's actually not even been... No one's really come that close to breaking that record. And um, because of a timing mishap at Pimlico two weeks later, he might have actually set the, the track record at Pimlico in that performance, which also was an amazing amazing race with uh, him basically circling the field on the first turn. And we didn't have a, a winner of the Triple Crown for for a long time after affirmed one in, in 1978, which was only a year following Seattle Slew winning in 1977, which was only a few years following Secretariat in 1973. And before Secretariat had won the last horse um, that had been a Triple Crown winner was the the great Citation, who completed his Triple Crown in, in 1948. So 
you had a, a big gap between citation and secretariat, which I'm sure if we had social media back in the late 60s and early 70s, would have had people saying, hey, it's too hard, we got to change it, which is kind of what we had. I remember back in 2012, Gary West, the, the excellent writer who was working for ESPN at the time, wrote an article about possibly changing the Triple Crown because of the differences that in the modern racehorse, how they're campaigned, how they're raced, and where it was a normal occurrence for horses to run back in two weeks in years past, the the typical spacing between races these days, especially for top-flight horses in this country, is at least a month, um, often more than a month, which is why the Triple Crown prep season has, has changed pretty dramatically over the years. But um, we had a lot of people that were saying that, uh, you know, perhaps we should lengthen these these gaps between the races a little more. And there was talk about even uh, decreasing the distances of the races, the derby being a mile and a quarter, which is almost always the first time a horse has ever attempted to go a mile and a quarter in their careers. Um, the, the the Preakness at a mile three sixteenths, which is a little bit of an odder distance, not found as many, depending on a track, the setup, but uh, you don't see very many mile and three sixteenth races at all anywhere else. Uh, and then obviously the Belmont, which is a, a mile and a half, and mile and a half dirt races are just uh, outside of the Belmont. They're just not found anymore. We just don't have a division of horses that, that runs that far on the dirt. So there's been uh, there's been talk about that. And honestly, since American Pharaoh won his Triple Crown and then with Justified coming back a few years later, a lot of that talk had been tabled and we hadn't really heard the sentiment of changing the Triple Crown because it wasn't all of a sudden considered too tough because obviously horses have done it. Justify was a horse that uh, was very, very inexperienced in comparison to past Triple Crown winners. And clearly you can't compare modern day horses campaigns to what happened um, during the years of uh, Sir Barton and Gallant Fox or Peyton Manning's favorite horse, Omaha, or War Admiral Count Fleet. Uh, I mean, it's just so much drastically different than it was now. Even the the 70s era Triple Crown winners were campaigned far, far, far tougher. Um, they were raced far more than uh, our current horses do. And horses in general, not, not just three-year-old male dirt horses, that are going to run in this series of race. But uh, I believe last year, the average start per horse in this country dipped below six starts 
which is which is a a troubling trend but um but six starts has been the norm here for a few years it's it's ticked down from seven from eight um one of the real key factors to me that that was always something that we should have considered was if the way two-year-olds are our campaign now is is really really different uh two-year-olds just don't run nearly as much they start later uh especially the the better quality horses the the horses with the better breeding the horses that may find themselves on the triple crown trail or for fillies the the kentucky oaks trail uh They're getting later starts, so we're seeing far less starts for two-year-olds in general. But even taking them out of the equation, horses just don't make as many starts as as they used to. Uh, Tom Top, who ran spectacular on Saturday at Churchill, winning the uh, Stephen Foster, just a few ticks off the track record, he's a seven-year-old, and that was his 18th lifetime start. And he's obviously had some issues and... Al Stahl's managed his managed his way through them, and that uh, I think he has eleven wins out of those eighteen starts, many stakes wins, but um, you don't the the game has changed for sure, especially especially for the better horses. Um, we don't see these stakes horses coming back nearly as often. And the one thing about the Triple Crown is that one of the main difficulties and what made it a achievement to do, and so few horses have been able to do it, is that you're asking a horse to do something he's never done before in running a mile and a quarter the first Saturday in May. Then you're doing something, you're asking him to do something that's something that you probably won't ask him to do again when you're running him back two weeks later in Pimlico. And then you're going to ask him to do something that they're never going to be asked to do again in running a mile and a half three weeks after that to conclude the series. So the difficulty in doing that is something that that wouldn't be that, that would be changed if we did something like change the distances or we um, changed the the layout of the triple crown. And we're going to have a a couple guests on today. Uh, our first guest is going to be Charlie McCarthy. Charlie's formerly with uh, Fox Sports Florida, the New York Post. He's been a columnist. Um, he he's, covers racing. And uh, he's doing some freelance work, doing some racing stuff. And Charlie is going to give us his feelings growing up on the the East Coast, following racing. And at uh, 3, we're going to have Baltimore legend John Scheinman. John Scheinman may be the single biggest fan of the city of Baltimore. And uh, the Preakness is a very, very important uh, event for John, and he has led the charge for keeping Pimlico open. He's been very vocal about that. He's he's uh, done what he could, and uh, it looks like that is actually going to happen with uh, 
a little bit of a different type of Pimlico, but um, and obviously the the issues of that we all face on a daily basis now have maybe held that up a little bit uh, moving forward on on the Pimlico uh, renewal kind of. uh, a different look uh, Pimlico is going to have. They're actually moving the track a little bit. But um, we're going to have him on briefly to to talk about his view and, and his feelings about the Preakness because the Preakness really would be the, the main, um, would be the biggest change. You know, if you change to Belmont timing-wise, you're really only probably going to change a week, so it's not that big of a deal. The two-week turnaround to the Preakness is really something that makes it a unique race outside of just the mile and three-sixteenths distance. So the Preakness is really going to be um, it's going to be the, the the biggest change outside of you know, really radical changes like changing the distances of the races and i really cannot see that happening i know it happened this year but it was a completely different story and we're coming off of nobody running almost for a few months you have uh the preps were interrupted and belmont being a mile and an eighth just was kind of um the best that we could do more or less the best that naira could come up with uh considering the derby had already carved out their their date and not wanting to get into the saratoga season and just uh not wanting to push it off too far and to be honest tis the law probably would have won if they had run the race at seven furlongs a mile and a 16th a mile and a quarter two miles six miles he was clearly the best horse, and uh, Barkley Tag had him ready to roll, and Manny Franco did a, an excellent job putting him in position, and honestly, I can't see any scenario which he would have gotten beaten in that race as it was run. But um, So we'll have, uh, we'll have Charlie coming up in, in just a few minutes, and... We will also open the phones up. The phone number to call in is 954-933-7349. That's 954-933-7349. And we want, uh, we want to hear your opinions. This is something that everyone has an opinion on. No one's neutral. Um, I will get into how what my feelings are. Once uh, Charlie's on, and I don't know if Charlie is in favor of changing it or if he's a a traditionalist. I I honestly don't know, and uh, I'm not sure where John's going to go. I know John will be John will be opinionated. John has a very strong opinion, and that's what we want. We want people to give your opinion and, and back it up and tell us why. So don't be afraid. Call us nine five four nine three three. 7349 and uh we'd love to hear from you and if you have any questions obviously we always take questions on any topic but um we want to get people's uh people's take on on the triple crown and it's it's something i'm sure that most of you are going to say that hey you know 
I'm really against changing it or I'm really for changing it. I don't think there's a lot of neutral people out there. So we'll take a little bit of a break here and we'll come back and we'll go with, uh, we'll bring Charlie on and uh, we'll, uh, we'll ask him what he thinks. We'll be right back with Charlie McCarthy. All right, welcome back to Going in Circles Live. Uh, our guest today, Charlie McCarthy. Um, Charlie, are you there? I am, Chuck. How you doing? Very, very good on this warm summer day down here in South Florida. <laughs> yes, it is. Summer in South Florida. You love it. Summer is here. Um, Charlie, why don't you tell uh, the listeners a little about yourself and uh, a little about your background and and uh, so they know who the real Charlie sure. McCarthy is. Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, thanks, Chuck. I know Charlie McCarthy was a hit on radio back in the 1930s and 40s, I guess, but I am not that Charlie McCarthy. Uh, I hail from Staten Island, New York. Uh, I got my break starting when I was in college at NYU. I got a job at the New York Post Sports Department. And from there, I've written for the Post. I've uh, gone on to uh, work for the uh, Bridgewater Curry News as a columnist in New Jersey. Then I came down to Florida about 20-plus years ago for CBS Sportsline, cbssports.com. Uh, got some got some uh, work on the inside there, too, but I've managed to keep the rust off writing and uh, helping AP and a few other outlets. Among those, I've, uh, I've covered Gulfstream Park for the past six or seven years for the Blood Horse. I've done some writing for Trainer Magazine, so um, always have been a fan of uh, of horse racing. You know, growing up where I did, I guess you could say I was, I kind of got my indoctrination uh, at the Meadowlands. So I got used to the trotters uh, and then the winter flats. But after moving to Florida, it's been great just uh, covering Gulfstream and really getting hooked into the horse racing industry. I know you wrote a great story on a, a local semi-celebrity that uh, he screwed up by quitting his job but um <laughs> anyways charlie what about let me, let me say if people i i hope on this uh on the podcast chuck you relay some of those anecdotes and stories that you told me because uh many of them were priceless i, I think we could probably redo that story a little bit or at least you could we'll just adjust <laughs> some of the some of the 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 parameters, but uh, it's not Absolutely. dead yet. Absolutely. <laughs> Anyways, Charlie, let me ask you a question. Before we ask you about the the Triple Crown, what was your take uh, uh, from the Belmont? What did you see? Were you a, a, a Belmont uh, hater, meaning were you upset about the uh, the distance being changed? I know a lot of people were. Um, but, uh, were you, were you in favor of the move or, or, and I know it's easy to say after the race now that it's, it's, you know, we knew who run and yeah, and everything, no, I, but what, what were your feelings on that? No, I, I think Chuck, look, I consider myself when it comes to sports, especially sports like baseball and horse racing where history has meant so much, you know, trying to compare eras, which, it's kind of impossible to do anyway, but we, but we all do it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't like to see that happen, but I think we all have to understand this is a very unusual year. We're in strange times in a way, 
And quite honestly, it was out of a lot of, you know, it was out of our control. You know, I mean, when it came to the Belmont Stakes, to answer your question, I mean, the horses, the trainers, the owners, I mean, they had nothing to do with the uh, virus. They were victims of it. Um, and, And I think, you know, normally with the Belmont, obviously, when you have a horse that has won two legs, it's there's nothing like the uh, the excitement and the anticipation of the Belmont Stakes, especially at the mile and a half, which is such a you know the ultimate test for any of these thoroughbreds. So that's always such a, a highlight on the calendar. And even when it's not a horse going for the Triple Crown, just the fact it is a mile and a half, a distance that most of those horses, if not all those horses, will never race again. Uh, it's such a unique, special uh, race. But again, I think this year is just so different, and a lot of things are out of people's control. We're kind of just trying to, you know, do what the smart thing is and what the right thing is. So, you know, I guess I could say reluctantly, you know, I get it and I understand. So, no, I, I really wasn't that, you know, upset by what they did with the Belmont in terms of scheduling and also in terms of the distance. Yeah, I, I was surprised that there was as much pushback on the, the distance change as there was. I mean, we have to remember, a month ago, there was very little racing. Basically, yep. it was um, Gulfstream and Tampa when, when Oaklawn had finished, which, which was uh, the first week in May. And, and that was literally the last derby prep was the split divisions of the... The Arkansas Derby way way back, I think May third. So, you were talking about a lot of horses coming off um, layoffs, and uh, you know there just aren't that many horses these days that are really suited to go a mile and a half. And when you take away all the prep races that you would generally see generally need and and you push them so far uh, ahead of the Belmont it just seemed to me to be the 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 mile and a half race would have been to try to de- i mean you're changing the the way the races are run you have you know they're out of order already so you already yep. have kind of an asterisk anyways so i i think the mile and an eighth was probably the best thing to do for this year obviously which is completely different than any other year that we've ever seen. But um, but I was surprised. Yeah, there was a lot of pushback, especially in social media. There was a lot of people that were declaring the Belmont to be um, not, you know, it shouldn't count, that it shouldn't be the Triple Crown anymore, that, um, that the winner well, wouldn't be as... Um, uh, I don't know what to, how do you say, it, but it, it wouldn't be as big of an accomplishment had it been in a mile and a half. And um, I mean, my question to a lot of them was, you know, I understand your feelings on that and I understand tradition, but how many traditions in this sport have been changed in the last 20 years? Virtually all of them. <laughs> and I, I, you didn't see much pushback to a lot of things. Everybody kind of said, well, you know, it's, it's things change. But the Triple Crown seems like it, it, it holds a special um, – it's like uh, something that's not supposed to be tampered with. Like the World Series. Well, if someone said, well, we're going to play the World Series, but it's going to be a best of three. I mean, everybody yeah. would freak out. 
Well, I think, Chuck, first of all, as a member of the media, I know how media members like to be opinionated and they can be selfish. So I think, you know, part of it there, and and a lot of times, just like the average fan, sometimes we think with our hearts and not with our heads, or at least we, 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 we think we're not, but we are, you know, and I always try to, you know, I try to take a little bit of a step back and try to make sure that I, I grasp the situation. Let's not forget, too, I mean, you know, the virus has put a lot of things kind of out of the news and on the back burner. And, you know, in the spring, we were just coming out of a, you know, the last year or two with horse racing. It's had a lot of controversy, you know, with a lot of horses breaking down and, and some of the things going on in Santa Anita. Um, and fortunately, I think, you know, we've, the industry has made some strides and improvements, and, and hopefully we're moving on from that. And I think the virus helped, you know, expedite that move on. But God forbid they ran the Belmont in a mile and a half, and you had, you know, uh, a horse, as you mentioned, you know, horses that were not running like normally because there has been a lot of racing at the tracks, and, and you know, trainers were kind of in a situation they've never been in before. You know, and um, you know, a, an accident or you know, what's going down there would have been would have been really bad. So, um, yeah. And when I say like before, I'm a traditionalist. I am, but I'm not against change if it's change for the right reason. You know, like when you mentioned the triple crown. If you know, I, I would like to. It's not that I think it's sacred, but you know, one, one excuse I've heard for. You know, maybe putting more distance between the races, especially the Derby and the Bell and the Preakness, is the well. You know, then you have a maybe maybe a better chance of a horse winning the Triple Crown. Well, I mean, <laughs> the Triple Crown should not be easy to win. You know, and and having to race within two weeks and then doing the mile and a half, it's been a pretty good you know judge of horses the last forty or fifty years in my mind, in my opinion. Um, so I wouldn't want to change it for that reason. Now, if if people think putting space between the races will help market the sport better and will get more attention to each particular race, and they think it might benefit the industry in ways that I'm not even thinking about right now, then I'd be for it. Because I think we all love horse racing, and we all want to see the sport. You know, it may not be the sport of kings like it used to be, but we certainly love the sport, and we want to see it become you know, a major sport or at least still maintain that, 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 you know, feeling among the true horse racing fans that it is a special sport and it's, it is doing well and it's, and, it, and it's, you know, giving people uh, opportunities to work in the industry and to, and to earn a living. So if they're doing it for reasons like that, then I could definitely be swayed and say, sure, do it. But if you're talking about just the racing itself and the competition and, and making the triple crown, you know, a, a tough test. I, I'd rather not see it changed. Yeah, I, I, I was saying before you came on, the one unique aspect of the Triple Crown is that each race is its own puzzle in that uh, a horse is being asked to do something that they've never done before. Yeah. In that the Derby, obviously the mile and a quarter distance is something that uh, horses ha- had never been asked to do up to that point. The quick turnaround to the Preakness on two weeks is something that uh, horses are, are graded stake horses are, are, are never asked to do. And the Belmont, obviously, with that distance, uh, the mile and a half, which is unique, basically. Now, now these days, there just aren't any other 
graded races at that distance. So, you know, you have the three elements of each race kind of combining the three races in five weeks. And and I've heard, I, I know that on the telecast, uh, NBC's telecast of the Belmont, there was talk between Randy Moss and Jerry Bailey and um, I believe the MIG about changing the Triple Crown going forward that Randy Moss's contention is that we should have a month between these races. The, the, the Derby should be run the first week in May or first Saturday in May. The Preakness should be run the first Saturday in, in uh, June and the Belmont the first Saturday in July. His reasoning is that it would be tougher to win. And I kind of completely disagree with that. I, I think that that doing that, you're actually giving the best horses a better chance in that maybe the best horse going into the Triple Crown Series is a horse that maybe isn't as um, robust of a horse as the horses below him. So the actual having to come back in two weeks on short rest. And, and I mean, even three weeks is considered short rest for stake horses these days. Yep. So having to come back three weeks and running the mile and a half, it, it's kind of the X factor in that it's a challenge in that you not only have to win the races, but you have to kind of do it, uh, breaking the norm, breaking out of what trainers normally do. The, the, mu- the month between races, in his opinion – and thinking it's harder, I think is flawed in that a lot of the horses who would be contenders, um, they don't, you know, going into the, the Derby especially, half the field generally isn't good enough. At least right. half the field in a lot of ways. They're just not good enough. You, you could probably <laughs> say in some years... 12 or 13 of them just aren't good enough. So the extra time going into the Preakness, it's not going to matter. They're just not good enough. Right. So, yeah, I know that guys have tended to skip the Preakness a little more these days because of the two-week turnaround. And, yeah, if you didn't win the the Derby, if you're not going for the Triple Crown, the incentive isn't quite – there as much as it used to be in the past where a classic win was a classic win. And I think one of the most amazing stats in racing is that Todd Pletcher, who has been uh, arguably outside of Bob Baffert, um, the most prolific triple crown trainer the last 20 years, uh, I, I believe he's around one horse in the Preakness. The, their their focus is the Derby. It's not even the triple crown, it's the Derby. And, and I I know a lot of trainers... And they're never going to say this publicly because they're not going to embarrass their owners, but their owners want to get to the Derby. And a lot of times they want to get to the Derby for reasons other than they think they have the best shot at winning or it's the best course for their horse. The Derby's famous. The Derby makes you famous. If you win the Derby, you're famous. If you run a horse in the Derby, then you have that um, that cachet, I ran in a Derby. I, I can't tell you how many times people ask me, that question, when they find out I'm a horse trainer, oh, yeah. have you ever run a horse in a derby? Have you ever won the derby? And um, 
it's that it's that and oh you guys know who's going to win the races right <laughs> which i always thought was i said yeah if you only knew how many hours a week i worked if i knew who's going to win the races i sure wouldn't get up at four o'clock in the morning and work till, exactly you know work till exhaustion sometimes but uh no it, it's it's a lot of a lot of ways these days the trainers are being paid to get to the derby to yep. qualify, to, to get in the race. It's such an event, and I'm not going to criticize Churchill Downs for making it the event it is because obviously it, it's a huge event. It's a huge moneymaker. It's the single most recognizable horse racing event in our country by a long ways. But some of the downside to that is that people want to be involved in it so badly that they – um, they run a horse in a race they got. They just don't have much chance in. And I know the Giacomo theory of hey, you know, put him in. You never know what's going to happen. And and that's true. I mean, it can happen, but ninety eight percent of the time it doesn't. And a lot of those horses are just exposed in the Derby. It's not that they would be viable contenders running back. If they had two weeks later, they just they just aren't good enough. So one I, of my, I'm sorry. One I, of my pet, no, I was just going to say one of my pet peeves with the current setup, and you touched on it with the Derby, is the 20 horses. I mean, to me, you know, I'd love to see 10 or 12 every year. But I get it. I talk, Like you said, I mean, you just never know. And, and look, you know, I mean, money drives a lot of aspects of not just this business, but any business. So... Um, and to your point about the owners and, and, and trainers training for the Derby, you know better than me because you were a trainer. But I'm, I'm guilty of it too. When I when I talk to an owner or a trainer, I mean I'm always looking, you know, what 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 Derby horses have they had, or you know, that's what people want to read about and know. Because those of us who follow it, clo- you know, more closely than others, we know, you know, the other horses and the other races. But to the average sports fan out there. They may not be big horse racing fans, but everybody knows the Kentucky Derby. You know, and they, they know the previous in the Belmont, too, but it's the Derby. that it, It's like an auto, an auto race in the Indianapolis 500, even today, where it's not that, you know, the race, the, the sport itself, open-wheel racing, may not be that big a deal, is still the Indianapolis 500, and that's how the Kentucky Derby is. Do, do you know, I, I couldn't name another open-wheel race. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing <laughs> to think about that, but I, I mean, I mean, you know, NASCAR obviously has surpassed um, yeah. Indy cars, but um, but you're you're right, and 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 that, listen, I'm not not criticizing the Derby at all. I mean, it's it's oh, no, a huge huge event, and I and I, you know, the surrounding the 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 way Louisville has has um, has made it. An event because it is a huge event there. The whole weekend, the whole the whole week leading up to the Derby, things stop in in, in Kentucky. There's no school on on Oaks Day. Um, you know, Thursday is called Derby because that's when the the locals come. Um, you know, the ones that aren't willing to pay seven thousand dollars for a ticket on on Derby Day or even Oaks Day is expensive. <laughs> right. and, I mean, Churchill Downs has essentially turned. Derby weekend into a you know hundreds of or I guess not hundreds but 
a billion dollar business. Um, I, I don't know what the actual net value of Churchill Downs is, but it's a lot, and it's a lot more than it was uh, 30 years ago before um, before the Derby. And, and listen, the Derby's always been a huge race, but just the lead up to it, the the amount of of, um, of coverage that you're getting is it's just uh you know when i was a kid the derby was on wide world of sports jim mckay yeah would be would be toasting it um but a lot of times and this is even growing up in new york a lot of times most of the field you, you had never seen run before and you you might not even know a whole lot about them because obviously there was no social media, there was no computers, there was no simulcasting. It was a far different world we lived in. But we didn't get to see the horse's works. Now, you see every contender's works pretty much from a few months out going going into it. And you're seeing every race. You're having every race dissected. You, you've got speed figures. You've got uh, sheet numbers. You've got uh, analysis all, all over the place. There's uh, so much, so much, so much more information, and it's really made it a bigger event. And the Triple Crown has has certainly increased in in uh, awareness and knowledge because of the Derby's presence. I, I would argue that the Triple Crown has kind of been drug along by the Derby to where. Uh, and and the, again, the Preakness has always been a big race. The Belmont's been always been a big race. But I remember I, I was saw something um, on uh, Facebook a few weeks back about Swale, and uh, that, that was actually the day he won the Belmont was one of my greatest handicapping days ever. Me <laughs> and my father and two close friends drove down that morning from Saratoga to go to Swale's Belmont, and there was no Triple Crown on the line. Uh, Swell had lost in the in the Preakness, um, but um, we we got there that day. We paid five bucks to get in, five dollars to get in the clubhouse, and uh, you know we didn't have seats or anything. But I think there was like forty five thousand people there, and it was a you know I mean Belmont forty five thousand people fits nicely. It's not uncomfortable at all, right. and it really was. A great day for us because it, it was it was crazy, Charlie. We we cashed like every single race, like 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 holes would open up and horses would come up the rail, and I, it, it, it was it was it was nuts. But um, uh, and then we, we capped it off that by, by going to the Meadowlands on our way home. But we we didn't quite do as well over there, so we got out of there. But uh, you didn't give it all back. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, but. You know what I'm saying is that it wasn't the event that it is now. It was just the Belmont, and it was a great card of racing, but uh, it wasn't anything special because there was no Triple Crown on the line, and uh, and Swell well, we, we, ran tremendous that day, which which unfortunately was his last race as, as he passed away a few weeks after that, but. What I'm saying is that nowadays, even when you're not going for the Triple Crown, the Belmont is a, is a bigger, is a far bigger event. It's, it's a bigger ticket, uh, and obviously, every year the Preakness, 
you have a chance of seeing the second leg of the of a triple crown because there's always uh almost always the winner i, I guess grindstone i mean grindstone be the last one i think grindstone would be the last derby winner that uh that didn't participate in the preakness well we, we live in a marketing centric world now chuck and and television means so much and you know, I'm about your age, too. We're, like, similar in age. And you think back, gosh, when you, when you were saying before about, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, which don't seem that far back, but, you know, you never had, you know, the information you have now, obviously, with the Internet and, and all the works and the video. And it, it really is crazy when you think about it. But in terms of the popularity or the attention given to it, I mean, you know, these... These uh, owners of the tracks and the events, I mean, they invest so much money into the marketing aspect to promote the races. And then you think about the power, just the power of television, the influence that TV has. Man, I remember, you know, when I was up in New York years ago, I did a little television here and there. And, you know, I could have written for the newspaper for, for many years. And yet it seemed like more people saw that one appearance or, you know, appearance on this show or that show. It's amazing. I mean, what television does. And when you think about, you know, again, I remember those Wide World of Sports days with Jim McKay for the uh, for the Derby. And uh, I know that the, uh, the big fights, Muhammad Ali and, and the other races, uh, I guess Indy 500. Although Indy 500 might have been its own event. But um, I do remember the Derby, with, you know, Wide World of Sports. And to think how it was then and now, gosh, it's, it's like these big events. It's like everything's a Super Bowl. You know, they come on television early. Now, granted, at least horse racing for the Derby, the Preakness, the Belmont, it's not the only race of the day, so they can fill up some of the day with live racing, which is great, leads up to, to that event, but, you know, they're on the air for five, six hours promoting the event, too, so, uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a different world in that sense, no question about it. Yeah, n- no doubt, and, and uh, I know that the most of the trainers of horses that put it this way, guys that have a chance of getting these type of horses, I yep. would think that most of them are for the change. I think a lot of them would rather um, would rather have the extra time, would make it more normalized for them. It, it would keep the horse on a normal schedule. And I know there's people that believe that the Triple Crown um, is too tough on horses. I believe that they th- th- their their thought is that uh, asking them to do what they have to do in the Derby with that twenty horse field, with the mile and a quarter, and then having to come back in two weeks is a little bit difficult. And um, that that's not it's not untrue, but by the same token, I think that, uh, like you said earlier, that it's supposed to be difficult. And we're not going to have uh, – ha- having a Triple Crown winner was thought to be one of the, quote-unquote, the answers for, for the business. It was, was going to be a right. huge, yep. huge thing for the business, which always was bizarre to me because, I, I you know, my first thought was, well – the problem with with a horse trip winning the triple crown is as soon as they get famous, they're probably <laughs> their career is probably going to yep be, be, be short. I mean, they're not going <laughs> to not going to see much of them afterwards. And uh, I, I had a brief podcast yesterday where I ranted a little bit about 
billionaires teaming up, and it still kind of aggravates me. Um, you know, it just seems, Charlie, that all that money is wasted on these billionaires. We we would be better billionaires than they are, at least for racing. <laughs> I'd like to give it a try. Yeah, you know. <laughs> someone put well, up well, the me, money and let us prove it. But, uh, you know, let I, me ask you this, Chuck. As a trainer yourself, I mean, based on what you're saying, there are a lot of people looking out. You know, first of all, there are a lot of people who, I'm not saying that they obviously they don't want bad things to happen to the horses, but, but they're looking at it strictly from a competitive standpoint, the races themselves. You know, meanwhile, these animals are, are animals that not just are going to have a racing career, but, you know, the, the colts and horses are going to have a breeding career, hopefully, um, and there's a lot of money at stake with that, too. You have, you have people who think they need sufficient amount of time between races. Then there are other people who say, hey, thoroughbreds are bred to run. They need to run. As a trainer, what's your feeling on that? Like, you know, uh, is two weeks enough time for you for us to come back and run? Well, unfortunately, I didn't have too many horses with the ability right. to be considered a triple crown level horse. And to be honest, there's not many of them. I mean, when you really, when it really comes down to it, you look at a crop of three-year-old colts at the end of the year. How many of them were really outstanding horses in a historical fashion? I mean, not just, hey, everybody would love to own a horse that wins a grade one race. Even if it's a, considered a weak grade one race, it's still you're in the what the upper one percent of uh, the upper one percent of the upper one percent. Right. But I think that's part of the the, the challenge. And yeah, you, sure, you, you, running back in two weeks is something that I did quite a bit in the beginning of my career. Um, and it seems like uh, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, it's not like I, I've been training horses since 1950, but it just seemed as the years have gone by that horses have gotten to be even less sturdy than they were 20, 30 years ago. And honestly, I believe one of the real main causes of that is the fact that so many of our horses now are bred to sell. And people love to breed Love to blame the breeding aspect. I don't know that it's actually the, the breeding itself. I believe, honestly, that the physical issues are more related to how horses are raised. In that they're assets. They're considered assets from the day they hit the ground. And if a person has put a, a tremendous amount of money into the mare and the stallion and the resulting foal, and they're meant to be sold. Well, you're more apt, and this is what happens, you're, you're apt to protect those horses. You're not going to raise those horses like you would, like horses were raised decades before. Right. And it's economic, and I understand it. I, I get it. I mean, you don't want your prize foal to go out there and, and – uh, you know, get kicked by another horse and have a scar or, you know, get injured or it's, it's, you know, that, that's a, you're getting one full year from your mare. If you're lucky. Well, it's like, 
So like pitches in, pitches in baseball, right? Years ago, they used to throw a lot more and pitch a lot more, but these guys get paid so much money nowadays. You know, teams are going to side on the side of caution. It, it's I mean, true, and, and honestly, there's so many things that can be done for horses. And you know, I think one of the big, and, and I'll, I don't want to get too technical here, but one of the big, really mistakes that we've made as an industry isn't demanding that horses that are sold at auction, uh, all surgeries uh, should be acknowledged. And I, I believe this because currently you can have a foal and you can do corrective surgery to them and, and not have to to put that in the, the horse's record. And I know some people do. but uh, And my feeling is that... W- how do we know that that actually that's not beneficial? How, how do we know that actually horses that had corrective surgery don't go on to have more starts than horses that that don't? Um, or I, I guess you can't compare a horse to himself because you know obviously you can't do the surgery and then not do the surgery. But I, I, you know I think it's it's looked at as a negative and certainly from a breeding aspect. Yes. When you buy a horse that's been corrected, that's not how God made them. So when you go to breed and maybe that horse was turned out, uh, the mare was turned out pretty good in her right ankle, um, she's not anymore. And when you get the resulting first foal, maybe she is because the foal took after the genetic makeup of of the, the dam and my my point, I guess, is that I, I think that we had a wasted opportunity in finding out that um, if a lot of those procedures actually were could be beneficial. Because, honestly, the one thing that is the biggest impediment to soundness in racehorses, it's not track surface. It's not any of the things you think it is. It's It's... The, the physiological the, the makeup of the horse the the, the conformation right. confirmation flaws are what causes most injuries um, it would be considered something similar to a a, a pitcher that what, what did they call what Strasburg had, he used to have the inverted W and, and and everyone was predicting him to have arm trouble because so many pitchers that that threw like that were were coming up with with uh, injuries and right. it's similar with racehorses in that if you're back at the knee if a horse is back at the knee they're gonna probably chip that knee at some point and it might be young it might be old it might do it twice but horses at back and knee put a tremendous amount of pressure on that joint and the stress of a, a thousand pound horse running at 38 miles an hour the force the concussion that they hit with eventually their body usually gives and to me correcting that now you know back at the knee is something that can't be corrected but but straightening a horse's legs out where the concussion goes up the leg in in a, a more efficient manner should lead to a sounder horse and that's kind of my uh my feeling on that, even though I know we've kind of gotten a little bit... Yeah, I didn't mean off. to get into the topic, but I guess in a nutshell, first of all, I think you said it's very interesting. Secondly, in a nutshell, regarding like the turnaround between the Derby and the Preakness, horses just aren't built or, or nurtured 
today than where they might have been in the past. Yeah, you know, I, I just think that they're not out. They don't spend as much time out as babies, as young horses. After after they they leave their mother, um, yep. it, the way it's done at much smaller, you know, horses who aren't extremely valuable type horses. Mostly the race. I'll give Mr. Ramsey credit in that he's had a tremendous success as a breeder. And Kitten's Joy turned out to be a great stallion. But even before that, he had done really well in his breeding program. And when I worked for him, the vast majority of his broodmares were horses he claimed. And he wouldn't, he would claim them sight unseen. I, I would ask him sometimes, Mr. Ramsey, you sure you want to claim this horse? She, she's, you know... She's about twelve hands tall. Right. No, Chuck, just just drop the slip, take her. We'll deal with whatever you know issues we had. And I believe that one of his real, um, I think a real strength that he had that he probably didn't even know he had was that his horses grow up outside. They're not babied. They're put in paddocks with a lot of other horses. There's a lot of uh, horse play. The horses run. They 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 fight. They they, you know, they live like horses are supposed to live, and I believe that that has got a lot to do with his success as a breeder. In that, he doesn't breed a lot of. He doesn't spend uh, one hundred and fifty thousand very often to breed to a, a, a top, top, top stallion, a tappet or a warfront. Right. And he has a lot of mares that he didn't buy for six million dollars. So. He let some be horses, and to his credit, it's worked tremendously with him. I, when I trained for him, I believe, and I can't remember the exact numbers anymore, but I believe I had 43, 48, something like that, two-year-olds over the few years I trained for him. And I think we had one horse that bucked shins. And we had horses that would get sore, or shins would get a little sore, but we'd back off them, give them time. And we had so many of them that it wasn't a big deal. But um, we didn't have nearly as many buckshins as other operations of that size. And back then, we were his chief sire was uh, Ghazi, who uh, certainly is not Kitten's Joy. But um, right. Ghazi was a decent enough sire. But he, the horses we got were tough. And I think a lot of his success uh, has been from allowing his horses to, to be horses and, and not to protect them and not to uh, hothouse well, them. Not, not baby them. I mean, I just, you know, maybe that's too harsh, but maybe some horses are just babied and really not allowed. I like the way you said it. They allowed horses to be horses. Yeah. And, and you know what? The other thing that this is a trend that's changed over the last couple decades is that yearlings used to be brought in fields. They'd pull their mane. They'd brush them up a little bit. They'd fix their feet and they'd bring them to, they'd bring them in fat and happy. And, that doesn't happen anymore. When you see yearlings now, and I'm talking in July, in August, in September, they look like little racehorses. And a lot of them have been in training of sort in that they swim them or they put them on jogging machines or aqua treads. And they're building more muscle than they probably – and muscle is, is heavier and they're building more muscle than they probably need to have at that point in their life. And I get it. They're trying to present to you the best facsimile of a racehorse 
so that you're going to see I mean, put it this way, if you all things being equal, if you bring me a yearling that's been out in the field and hasn't done much and, and they hadn't been prepped much, and you bring a horse that's been prepped, the the one that's been prepped is just going to look better. They just are. They they teach them right. how to walk, the the strength. You know, they they've got all the little tricks, and I think that's a big factor because so much of our our fall crop, especially with the best breeding stock, is meant for sales and. I'm not even going to talk about the two-year-old in training sales because clearly if a horse is compromised going into a yearling sale, well, then the two-year-old sale isn't might not even be the primary problem. It might be the fact that uh, the horse wasn't developed enough, maybe didn't develop enough bone, maybe developed too much too much muscle, uh, too got too heavy, popped too many splints, had too many issues that a, a racehorse has that a baby shouldn't have. It's uh, it's one of those issues where, like, you get it, you understand that the people who prep these horses and sell these horses, that's their job. And plenty of them go on and do great. So it's not like this is the, uh, you know, Chinese water torture for them. But I think as a whole that we might be weakening our horses by trying to advance their development quicker than their development naturally wants to be. And that's something that that's something that I don't know that um I don't know how to fix it because I can't tell you I train racehorses. I I I didn't have I'm not I'm not by no means an expert on foals. I, I tried to pick out weanlings at a sale a couple times, and to be honest, I, I was dreadful. You'd probably do better if you just threw darts at the, the book. Than, than, <laughs> really? I, I just was – some guys are really good at it. But weanlings are like – it's like picking out uh, – weanlings are, are you know horses that uh, were, were less than a year old. So it's like going out and, and and looking at sixth graders and trying to figure out who's going to be the best uh player at 21 you can see the clear obvious ones the ones that look like lebron when they're they're in sixth grade and you can see the ones that are really really scrawny or just not you know the the ones that aren't any good the top 10% the bottom 10% but in the middle it's tough and and i i was much more uh Effective and, and I felt much more comfortable looking at yearlings than I than I did weanlings. Weanlings are are, are very difficult to, to look at, and, and even weanlings get get some prep. So, well, you mentioned something before too. I mean, like you know, the trainers, the owners who perennially have triple crown horses. I mean, they have the best modern technology at their disposal, and you know whether it's the whirlpools or the things they can do in water or, or just training now that, you know, the average trainer doesn't necessarily have at his or her disposal, um, that is going to, as you said, I mean, you know, those, those horses that, you know, as, as young colts have a lot more muscle than maybe some of the other horses, I mean, that, that that's kind of where the uneven playground kind of starts. No, right? no doubt, no right doubt. Right from the start. Uh, our, uh, our second guest has arrived via telephone, Mr. Scheinman, sir. Fire. 
via telephone. How else am I going to be there? Well, <laughs> we expected you to come down for the show. This is a prestigious show, and I, and I would have sent the the uh, the Learjet, but uh, oh, you I know, love it. You got to work, so I mean, I've heard you guys have a spectacular green room, and I'd love to. <laughs> Our green, our green room is, is blue. But, uh, John... Everybody's a little blue right now. Uh, yes. John, uh, just give a quick uh, little introduction. Um, your background in horse racing. I've already said that you are the single most passionate fan of the city of Baltimore and the Preakness itself and, and the resulting uh, racetrack Pimlico. But uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, I, uh, uh, I'm a two-time Eclipse Award winner. Got to start off right there. I've written for many racing publications. I still contribute to the Blood Horse, although not as much as I used to. I've covered racing for eight years at the Washington Post. I've written for the Pollock Report. Uh, I worked at Naira for, I don't know, five or six years on the uh, communications team when it, when it was at its peak. Uh, we had a great team with Jenny Kellner and Dan Silver, who's now with Robert's Communications, and uh, I've been in the game a long time. Hall of Fame voter and, um, and a hardcore gambler. And it's funny because 14 years ago, and I've just finished spending the money that I won on Battle 1, you put across... <laughs> The day uh, Giacomo won the Kentucky Derby. That was that was someday. The owner of that horse, Jay Manujan, he he won so much money in that horse, and he didn't even come. He he stayed out in uh, California where he lives, and he made bets at Los Alamitos that they tried to pay him with a check, and he said, "I bet with cash. I want to get paid with cash." And they said, "Mr. Manujan, we don't have that much money here. <laughs> we have racing tonight. You can come down Monday morning with the." The, the treasurer and, and go to the bank and get your money, but uh, yeah, that that was uh, that that was a, that was a definite uh, a highlight of, of my career winning uh, the Churchill Downs Handicap. I, gave, uh, I, I was on. I don't know if you know Jason Lavin, uh, but he he uh, he has a racing radio show in uh, Los Angeles, and I went on as a guest of the show that day. And I gave out two horses. I gave out Battle One and I gave out Chocomo. Wow. Like, like oh my god! I mean, that it, was a legendary day. It, and they came after out that, room, John, I, I made a pile of money. And uh, uh, Jenny Reese, who longtime writer for the Louisville Courier, they had, in the old press box at Churchill, they had a you know the Courier had its own private room away from the riffraff, which is the rest of us. And she comes out and she goes. Yeah, the courier wants to do a story on you winning all that money. I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think that's a good look for me to be in the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, plus <laughs> plus everybody's going to want your opinions, and then you might find a lot of people calling you up and saying, you know, I got this idea. We could, uh, if you just send me 10000 I could do this. Oh, yeah. Or, no, or our friends at the IRS might get a hold of you. But, uh, was- John, what we're talking about today is is the Triple Crown. And obviously, this year it, it's been all thrown out of whack. But uh, there was some there was some talk before the Belmont on the NBC telecast uh, about perhaps changing the Triple Crown, modernizing it, and and, and uh, 
I, I think basically they were talking about changing the gap between the races, not actually changing the distance of the of the races. But uh, I know you're a big, big, big Pimlico supporter, and, and obviously the the main reason for Pimlico's existence at this point is is the Preakness. Um, what are your feelings on on changing the Triple Crown? Absolutely not. Don't do it. Uh, it's just it, w- it would be horrible. And I think it has been changed in the past. It's not like it's been this the way that it is now for eternity. And uh, there were even times when the races were run in different order, as they are being done again this year. But one thing I am against is 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 changing the racing game itself and modifying the way the game is played, um, I think the word's acquiescence, to poor breeding practices in the, in the, in the sport. I think we've, we've, I think racing, I think, I think the breeders of thoroughbreds that wind up in racing have done a great disservice to the long-term well-being of the breed. And when these animals are unable to are unable to perform the way that they did in the past for a variety of reasons, uh, greedy and short-sighted breeding practices and, uh, and drugs in the game, we have a less, a, a less uh, uh, an animal that can't, that can't withstand the rigors of, of the sport that it's been bred to play. So we're going to change the game for them? No. I think we keep the game the way it is and, and force the breeders to change to meet the game. That's what I want. I want stronger horses built, longer-lasting horses built. You know, it's interesting so because we were just talking about that, and, and my point was that in addition to the breeding practices, I, I believe that, and I don't want to reiterate everything for the audience who's been listening, but I want to just bring John up to up to speed, is that I don't think horses are raised properly anymore, John. I think that they're they're not looked at as horses they're looked at as assets and as such from the time they hit the ground to the time that they're separated from their mother that they're protected and they're not let run up and down the hills and and they're they're, they don't they can't afford an injury because they spent two hundred thousand dollars on a on a on a a, a stud fee or they bought this mare for three million dollars and they need to get money back and they want to reduce their risk and i believe that with the the tremendous percentage of horses our best bred horses are going to be available for auction that that has really affected um the the hardiness of the breed not only the 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 breeding practices and we also you know brought up things like uh corrective surgeries and that you know when when you have a corrective surgery to a foal and that's not uh, that that's not that's not listed uh, when a horse sells it seemed that that always troubled me, and, and I thought that that would be something that, that someone deserves to know. And we don't know the effects because we never um, we never required people to disclose that. So perhaps one of these clinics has studied it, and maybe they don't want the information out. But um, I, I would think that uh, that that it might help. I mean, but I do believe I really truly believe that. One of the reasons that we're seeing horses that just aren't as strong as the the counterparts from years past is that they just miss that 
that development as young horses, that pounding that they get running up and down hills, playing, fighting with other horses, run, getting, you know, getting that competitive spirit. And I don't think you can, you can, you can't go back. You can't find that development after you've bought a horse because I think it's gone by that point and um and I really think that that's that's uh, you know sadly I don't I don't think that's going to change I think that uh, the 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 money at the end of the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that that breeding and that sales money is what attracts a lot of people and um you know I, it's not going to yeah, change I would entertain I would enter- entertain an argument on this but I will say that when when hedge fund ma- hedge fund managers become the dominant players as owners in the game you're going to have a problem it's the same thing in my industry newspapers they they approach they approach the fundamentals of a long standing industry different in a different way and their objectives are different. So the raising of the horses in the way you're talking about is no longer paramount. When it should be and it must be. Same as when they move into the newspaper industry. Putting out a, a quality newspaper with a lot of reporters is not what they're after. What they're after is squeezing whatever dimes they can get out of it and, and, get, and get a hold of as many properties as possible and coalescing their dominance in the field. It's wrong. It's, it's not good for the game. No, it, it's and not good for the any, game. And, and anybody who reads past performances on a daily basis knows who I'm talking about and sees these names repeatedly show up, showing up in the ownership of one horse after another. And you know what's interesting? And by the way, I, 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 I want to talk about this, but I cannot stay on long. I'm on deadline right now. I just want to let you know I can't stay on too much longer. But it, it gives me, even though he's starting to take on some of these owners, to address what you've been saying, it gives me great pleasure to see Graham Motion on the run he's on right now. Because yeah. I know how he trains his horses, and he does the things that you're talking about. They run up the hills at Bear Hill. They do, they do what's necessary. Now, I'm not saying you can't train at a racetrack and have great success, but you know, you know as well as I do, there's some kind of trainers who train one way, and a few trainers left still training the old-fashioned way. That that's absolutely true. And uh, John, we appreciate you taking time out of your day, and we do not want you to miss your deadline. So uh, we well, I, I, we can talk about Triple Crown real quick if you want to, because that's what you asked me to come on for. Let me ask you this question: Randy Moss thought that spacing the races a month apart would make the Triple Crown a more difficult task. I kind of don't believe that to be true. What, what's your take on that? Why did he say that? What did he think was the difference? I think he th- his theory is that the competition will have more time to 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 catch up. Um, that that was kind of his his the, the 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 training will be more normalized and um, you'll have more horses that compete in the Preakness because he feels that a lot of them drop out of the Preakness because of the quick two-week turnaround. And if obviously if you don't win, then your running in the Preakness becomes not quite as uh, important as, as it would be. Um, personally, I, I, I think, uh, you know, we spoke about it uh, earlier in the, sh- the show. I, I don't think, I think that that's incorrect because I think that a great deal of the Derby field aren't really viable win contenders anyways. 
and I think the Derby exposes them as much as anything. Well, I mean, we always used to say at Pimlico that it was the real race, that the Derby cuts out the, cuts out the chase, cuts out the riffraff, and then the real horses show up at Pimlico. Now, even that's changed because so many people who have competitive horses in the Kentucky Derby will skip the Preakness and go wait for the Belmont, which is absolutely absurd to me. Here's how I, here's how I look at it. If you're really training your horse properly, when you get to the Derby, if he runs a clean race, he should be very, very ready and fit to run two weeks later. He should have a foundation. And I remember John Ward talking about this with Monarca. He just, I mean, Monarca didn't win, didn't win at Pimlico. But he, said, he just scoffed at the idea that the horse wasn't going to be ready in two weeks. He goes, I trained for the Triple Crown. He knew that he had put the proper foundation into the horse. Half of these people are showing up there with animals that got their God knows what goes into their training. But you see, you see those horses and those training methods exposed after the Derby when the horse never is able to compete again. At, that, at the level that he came into. And not only the also-rants, Chuck, the winners disintegrate, too. Yeah, See, that, 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 that's true. I mean, there's no like doubt. Horses like always dreaming. I mean, I don't, I don't want to na- name names or criticize certain people, or, you know, and not all, not, every, not all these horses fit what I'm talking about. I'm just speaking in generalities. A lot of these horses disappear after they win their big race, after they get crushed in their big race, I mean, there's just something's wrong there. Something's really wrong. Yeah, we, and, you, and you know what? And you know what? Tisman Law will continue to run and continue to succeed and excel because he's trained by Barkley Tag. And, and Barkley <laughs> has done a tremendous job. I, I got to see him all winter and... Uh, Barkley told me. Barkley told me before he left. He says, "You know, this horse has never it hasn't had a single bad day this winter. He's never missed a beat, and uh, he clearly showed that in the Belmont. And I mean, obviously, to me, uh, he, he's certainly the horse to beat going into the Derby, which is amazingly still a month away, more than a month away. But uh, I, I, I think I, we have an Ascal and Travers to run before then, don't we? And, and a Bluegrass. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's insane. Yeah. Anyway. I, what I just want to—I got to—I got to go, but I just want to throw some things at you quickly. Sure. I have been counseling all my racing friends to calm down. This year is so blown. Don't worry about it. When little when things happen in racing or people make announcements, just let them roll off your back. It's out of everyone's control. You know, tracks are doing things to survive, or tracks are doing things to be really greedy. <laughs> It doesn't even matter. Just let it go. And when the races come up, just enjoy those races for what they are. You know, and just like, just everybody calm down. We have exploding coronavirus cases going on right now. People should not be worrying about racing. should be enjoying it while it's going on, but don't be worrying about the direction it's going in. It's a blown year. Stay safe. Put your mask on. That's what I wanted to say. Sage advice, John. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And uh, make that deadline, brother. Well, I hope we'll talk again soon. It's you been got great. it. Anytime. Okay, bye. John Scheinman. See, I, I told you John would have strong opinions. And that, that's, uh, that's kind of what we're looking for. Anyways, uh, Charlie? Chuck? You're still there? 
I am still here listening to you and John, and uh, that was exactly my fault. John's a very uh, timid, shy guy. I guess. <laughs> he never has anything to say. He never has a strong <laughs> opinion on anything, John. You know, you gotta, you, you gotta, you know, uh, cajole it out of him. I mean, he's just uh, just a timid type hey, of got- guy. You have to love his energy. Hey, listen, anybody who lives in Baltimore their whole life, they got to be tough. It's a tough city. <laughs> Good it, point. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not an easy place. It's. It's a tough. It's. That's a tough town. I mean, that. That's what it was uh, always known for. That was uh, one of the great television shows of all time. I don't know if you saw it. it was The Wire? Oh God, oh, I, I. I just rewatched it uh, because you know there's like nothing on. Yeah, I'm the type okay. of person. I don't really watch regular TV very much. Promote, for the most part, I watch sports, <laughs> I watch racing, <laughs> um, right. you know, maybe a movie once in a while. But like regular TV, I mean, I've been exposed to that, and now I remembered why I don't watch it. But I did, I did watch the entire series a few weeks back, and uh, it, it was actually one of the great. Uh, one of the great television series of all time. I mean, there's a little place in Baltimore and they angled on every season angled on something different, whether it be the docs or the media or the politicians or the, the, the drugs, obviously. But, uh, yeah, no. So to your point, uh, John and his fellow, uh, Baltimore residents, natives, uh, they have a little, little toughness to them. Yeah. You know, John was very, very vocal in his support of Pimlico. Um, and, I'll be honest, I, two years ago, I didn't think Pimlico had any chance of being around. I thought they were going to jam Laurel down the throat, that the Baltimore would eventually, um, the city of Baltimore would back down because they just wouldn't have be able to come up with the money. And uh, it, it, it actually, it seems like Pimlico is going to, is going to be fixed. Uh, I agree with you. It, it I, needs... I know when I when I when you see them saying that, I, I'm surprised because I, I I like you from Pimlico's days were basically over, and that everything would be going in normal. You know, uh, the last time I was at Pimlico, we shipped a horse in there. I, I was uh, I never I, I ran a horse there as a trainer, but I, I actually didn't go. But um, I think I was in Kentucky at the time, and and I had horses in New Jersey. But um, I remember the last time I went to Pimlico, I believe I went with Jimmy Jerkins, and uh, we shipped into the Steaks Barn. And the Steaks Barn at Pimlico is actually like the only nice place <laughs> in the on the entire plant. I mean, everything else was was literally falling apart. And uh, um, it's it's an old time track, and you know, it just. Uh, it would be sad to see it go, and and I I kind of understood the economic, you know I, I could understand the economic view that uh, the Stronic Group was taking, and you know it's tough to have two tracks in in a close proximity to each other, and to maintain both of them, um, j- just having to take care of the backsides of of both tracks plus buoy, uh, you know track surface maintenance and and just uh, you know the massive expense of of the backside. With water, electric, uh, I don't even want to know what the uh, the liability and or workman's comp insurance or work, you know the liability insurance is. But um, well, it's an entirely different situation. But to hear you say that, and describe it, just reminds me of Hialeah. 
I mean, obviously, there's a whole different story with Hialeah, but just when you go to the track and you can kind of, even though there's areas that have kind of gone decrepit and fallen apart, you can still, you know, the ghost is still there, and you can still kind of feel the glory days. And uh, you're right. It's like other venues and other sports, too. I mean, you know, people want them to last forever, and unfortunately, either they have to be rebuilt or they have to be torn down. But, um, you know, you'd like to see some of them last as long as possible. Yeah, like uh, Saratoga certainly is. You get that uh, that flavor of of years past, and yep. And fortunately it, for us, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. I was no. there years ago, and it was still great. No, um, you know one of one of the the problems with the old time grandstands is they're just so big, and just just they're just not. They're just not used very often. Saratoga is the one track, and Churchill obviously is, is, has has a huge capacity, which is generally only filled when uh, you know Derby Week or if they have a Breeders' Cup there. But uh, that's not going away anytime soon either. But there just aren't that many uh, of those old facilities that are left, and and, and basically uh, Belmont, even Belmont, which is was rebuilt in the the late sixties, early seventies is kind of a a white elephant of sorts in that it can it can handle ninety thousand people, and, and uh, you know you don't get nine thousand people there on a busy weekend. So you just have these huge facilities to, to take to take care of, and uh, you know obviously Preakness is a big enough event where. They can make enough money at that that uh, it's it's still probably going to be a uh, you know they're not going to I don't it's probably boring to talk about the finances of racetracks but it's still a huge event and and it's still it would be tough to pull that off at at Laurel it just isn't the same you don't have the space they don't have the 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 infield isn't really designed for that so uh, the one thing about the Triple Crown races are they they still have the capacity to 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 bring the, a huge crowd in. And uh, that's something that, that we, we do see at Saratoga. We see a little lesser extent at Del Mar. But when I was a kid, uh, we would go to Saratoga. And there's, there's probably bigger crowds at Saratoga now than there was then. And, and that's when Saratoga was strictly an August meet. It was four weeks, uh, six days a week, four weeks. But... Um, you know, certainly the weekends would always be packed, and the big days would always be packed. But uh, but now it's it's more popular than it ever was, and it, it's one of the the shining stars of the game. And, and it's really kind of unfortunate that it looks like, at least in the beginning part of the meet, there won't be any any fans allowed to be um, in attendance at the track, and. Yeah, it's it's such a unique well, and it's like me coming from New York City, and people talk about it as visitors, and I can, you know, to me there are things I probably don't appreciate the way I should because it's my home and I'm used to it. You at Saratoga, you know, you grew up there, but it sounds like you understand and appreciate exactly what it is you have there because it's such a unique place, great history, and it's just the the. You know, and going back to what we said before about the Triple Crown races being, you know, just promoted and marketed 
uh, in recent history. Uh, same with Saratoga. It's kind of a, a vacation destination now. It's a great little town that comes alive in the summer and, you know, focused, you know, centering around the racing. And to be there and, and know that all the big names in the game are there for that beat, and, uh, it's just such a great environment to be in. And it is sad and it's not going to be quite Saratoga as we know it without the fans. But I'm glad they're going there. Uh, initially, I wasn't sure because, like anything with this virus, it seemed like I don't think I've ever seen a story, sports, non-sports related, that was changing as quickly as this story was changing the first couple of months. Every time you turned, you, know, you turned around, it was some different aspect that surfaced. And even now, there's still a lot of things changing and coming around, you know, uh, we're finding out about the virus and about the effects and some of these other sports are trying to start up, but until they actually do, I'm not going to believe it because you're going to have some players and athletes testing positive in those sports. So initially I was kind of, well, you know, I'm not sure going to Saratoga is a smart move, but I'm glad they're planning to do it because uh, just just maintaining the, uh, you know, the, the tradition and just, you know, kind of giving people a little normalcy, even if the fans aren't there. I think this is such a huge deal down, you know, right now. Yeah, I agree. I'll be honest. I don't see why they couldn't figure out a way with the size of that facility. And I understand, like, it's not going to be easy when you have thirty or 40,000 people wanting to come to say that we'll allow 5,000 in. But if you're going to open up casinos right across the street, which is an indoor facility and people have to be in close proximity to each other, it just just seems to me that there would be some way, shape, or form that they could find a way with the the enormity of the Saratoga Grandstand and the the picnic area. And and sure, you can't just let people in and do what they want. You'd have to have things cordoned off. You'd have to have uh, rows, sections, whatever. But it just seems that something could have been done. Um, Kind of the same with with the Belmont, with allowing the owners of the Belmont horses only in. At Belmont Park, it just seemed like they could have designated, you know, made three people or four people the the limit, and each horse could have four people with them, and they would have to social distance. They couldn't go in the the paddock or whatever. But you know, Belmont's a massive facility. <laughs> to think they couldn't find I, space I, for thirty people is just. Uh, and I understand, I you know, it came yeah, late, Charlie, and they probably didn't want to piss the governor off because yeah. you know everyone in New York has to live in in, in uh, fear of Mister. Mr. Cuomo. It's like, South, it's like South Florida, Chuck, right? I mean, I think the way I believe is for the last couple of months, I mean, if, if people do the right thing, you know, wearing a mask when they're being asked to, and, and wearing a mask is showing respect for other people. It's not necessarily meaning you're not going to get sick, you know, but wearing a mask when you're supposed to, maintaining social distances, and, and, and just washing your hands as they keep, you know, keep have slipped from the beginning, you know, for the most part, you're going to be fine. And now, I realize when you talked about Saratoga, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, some of the crowd at Saratoga, the demographic might be a little older than, than some other places. But then when you mention the casino, I'm like, well, <laughs> the casino demographic is probably similar to the racetrack. So, you know, I can see on the one hand with an older demographic, they want to be a little extra cautious. 
But to your point, I agree. These venues are so big. And I think for the most part at those venues, people would do the right thing. And you have, you know, people making sure they did the right thing. Um, as opposed to down here with bars and beaches and young people, you know, hanging out together. I think it is, it is seen like Saratoga for the most part, especially with people monitoring and, and making sure people are doing the right thing. I agree. I think they could have people there. But, you know, again, politics plays into everything right now. Yeah, it, it's such a blow to the, 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 the city of Saratoga. The the economic impact oh, of absolutely. the meat is, is huge. And it's just, um, you know, it, it's it's a tourist place in the summertime. And, and a lot of people depend on renting their house out. A lot of people depend on, uh, they have, you know, restaurants or, or other businesses that really need that influx of summer money that that's not going to come and and i understand that uh you know it, it's it's very hard to to plan anything i mean a month ago the nba thought it was the greatest idea in the world to have um orlando be the, yeah, the, the place where they bring everybody and now it's <laughs> um uh now it's kind of uh <laughs> um it's kind of, um, you know, everyone's oh, well, having yeah. second guess. Everyone's having second thoughts. So, I, you know, I, I get it. It's it's impossible. And, and I'm sure there's liability issues. And I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that um, you know, the blame game is something that happens these days um, all the time. Yep. And I know that you don't want to lose your job because... You let a few thousand people in at Saratoga this year, and it suddenly becomes a hot spot. And then all of a sudden, you're you know an irresponsible jerk, and uh, you know you're greedy. And next thing you know, you know they're and unfortunately, Chuck. You know, as I said before, if people did the right thing, I think for the most part, we'd all be okay. But there are a lot of people who, whether they're ignorant, whether they're selfish, whatever their reasoning is, they're not going to do the right thing. And it it just would take, God forbid, one person who went to Saratoga to, you know, catch the uh, virus and, and let's say if that person died, then forget it. You know, then it's, then it's a major black eye story against the sport. So um, I think what John said at, during his, his interview was, was a good way to look at it. I mean, we all have our opinions on how things should be done or should have been done, but it's such a unusual uh serious type year because of the virus we should you know the takeaway with horse racing is basically just be thankful and enjoy it while it's there because not every sport i give all the tracks credit like when, when golf just started at the beginning chuck i really questioned it i said there's no way they're going to be able to make sure nobody tests positive either they did a good job covering it up or it seems like nobody you know they had no problem on the back, on the back side, and with the racing, so I give Gulfstream Park and the other tracks that maintain the business all the credit in the world for keeping the sport going. And I think right now we should just more or less, uh, you know, take what we have and enjoy it. I, I think Billy Badgett did a, an unbelievable job keeping Gulfstream open because there was a lot of opposition, and 
not not from the horsemen, not from the horse people, not not from us, but from uh, the outsiders. Certainly, yeah. outsiders who, you know, people are paranoid about everything, and when you're you're talking about pandemics and stuff, um, you know, it's it gets a little. You know how things get, but but he did an unbelievable job of of keeping keeping uh, Gulfstream open, of uh, keeping people safe, putting in protocols that were uh, wound up being templates for other tracks to use. Yep. And the funny thing about it is, John uh, Charlie, is that uh, the backside of a racetrack is the most rumor filled place in the world, and it's hard to keep a a secret. Um, it's hard to keep a secret on the backside, and I didn't hear of any potential, um, you know, cases or, or oh, they're hiding it or they're covering it up. And the biggest fear was was the jockeys. If one of the jockeys had gotten sick uh early in the in the um in the beginning yeah um that probably would have shut down because we we can't just find a, a whole new crew of jockeys to come in you know at the last minute to you, know, well, you, can, dis- you can disinfect the jockeys room but if everyone if all the jockeys are in quarantine it's not easy to find uh uh you know a dozen yeah you know writers competent jockeys to, to just show up here because wherever they would come from they would have to to be quarantined so the fact of the matter was that they did a tremendous job billy did uh, i know he spent a lot of time far more time than he probably wishes he had to talking to politicians and uh political people so uh the fact that the media cynic in me always kind of throws that in you know in case they were covering it up but quite honestly I don't know Billy as well as you know him, but I know Billy a little bit. Great, upstanding guy. And I know the other people at Gulfstream. I really meant it. I mean, to pull that off and what they did was extremely remarkable. And uh, they should—they deserve a lot of credit because, like you said, they, they kind of set a standard. Whereas, you know, if they hadn't been able to pull it off, I'm not sure some of the tracks that opened up in the months uh, soon thereafter, they wouldn't have done that. You know, who, who knows what it would have meant for even the Triple Crown race. I mean, they probably would have set a schedule because it looks so far down the road. But, man, we're already three and a half, four months from when this started. And, um, yeah, it's such, a, such a, you know, circumstances, you know, we really couldn't have predicted. And the way Gulfstream has handled itself is really, uh, really remarkable. Yeah, it's it's been... Uh... It was really a lifesaver. Uh, honestly, I don't know, and I know a lot of other tracks have struggled because they weren't able to be open, and some of them are just now reopening. But um, the fact that we raced on a relatively normal schedule and a normal training schedule kept things going, it it, uh, it really was a, a huge benefit to, to the people here, and uh, it, it gave the players something to uh, something to watch. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the handle numbers, obviously, when you're running unopposed, when you have no other racetracks open or very few, or and you have no sports and you have no other entertainment options, it's, uh, 
it's it's a pretty good scenario and you're you're going to do better but uh the fact they stayed open that that was really the key because i i think had they not stayed open it would have been a lot tougher for other places other areas other tracks to use them as the 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 example of hey we can do yep. this look they're doing it so we can do it too and don't think that that wasn't a factor in a lot of other areas opening up because uh i know for a fact that that it was and uh and uh you know it's uh like you said it's unprecedented times so i think we have a caller hello hello yes hey (laughs) hi who is this hi it's jennifer it's jennifer kelly jennifer kelly oh jennifer kelly we have another writer it's it's writer day today (laughs) Jennifer, for people that don't know, wrote a book about a the first Triple Crown winner. Jennifer? Yep, and I'm working on another one. Who are you working on now? Gallant Fox in Omaha. Yeah, that that's that would be two. Oh, one book for but two horses. Right. They were owned by the same person, so it only made sense to put the two of them together. Plus, you know, one side or the other, so that was the reasoning behind it. That's 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 really. Uh, how far along are you? Um, I'm drafting at the moment, so I have a deadline and I have um, like dates in mind. But there's lots of things that have to happen between this point and that point. So it's like I'm in. I'm drafting. Okay. <laughs> I'm writing the first draft right now. So let's put it that way. Excellent. Well, our topic today was, or has been, the uh, the Triple Crown, and and should we change it? And considering that you wrote a book on the first horse that actually accomplished a Triple Crown and are now working on a book with number two and number three, um, you would have a, a unique perspective. So what is your feeling, Jennifer? Okay, well, I will talk from the historian perspective. Um, I've been a fan since I was a kid, so I know personal experience, how I feel about it. And then there's also the professional aspect of it where you, you look at it as a whole over the last hundred years. And, you know, I always go back to what Baffert said after Pharaoh won where, you know, he had come so close before with other horses. And he said, you know, it takes an extraordinary horse you know, to do this. And so for me, like looking at my own experience as a fan over the last 30 plus years and then knowing the history of the sport as I do, and I'm I'm by no means am I an expert, but, you know, I, I feel like I've read enough where it's like, I feel like keeping it the way it is, is a better idea right now. I'm not ruling it out in the future, but Right now, I think the way that it is, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to change it. So I think there's a lot of pluses to leaving it the way it is. And I know there's ancillary and extensive concerns around the sport that are related. And certainly you've talked about them over the course of the show because I've been listening. Uh, But for me, it's like there's so many things that go into, you know, it's not just as simple as changing the calendar. You know, there's other races and other uh, schedules that are dependent on 
the sequence. So if we change it, you know, there's a lot of other kind of, you know, things that are going to have to happen in addition to that, which I'm just not sure that that's going to happen. <laughs> Does that make sense? No, actually, that's a great point in the the impact on the other races, um, the Haskell, the Travers, the Jim Dandy, uh, the other summer you know, we, we consider those the summer three-year-old races where if we extended out the Triple Crown season from May into July, we, we would be mm-hmm. going uh, a lot further into the summer than than normally we would. That That's actually an excellent point. Um, and, and, it's, and it also goes back to, like, you were talking about the changes and how the races are marketed. And if you don't mind me expanding on that for a second. No, that's fine. Um, I, when I was in graduate school, worked at a comic book store and I would often have people come in and say, comic books are for kids. They're not because comic people who read comic books when they were kids are now adults. And the way that that genre changed, it changed to accommodate its audience. So you have the same now with the way that Triple Crown and other things are marketed in that the generation that like mine, I'm Gen X, you know, I'm in my forties and I grew up with, you know, Jim McKay and wide world sports and all the stuff you were talking about earlier. And like for me, because that was the only racing I was exposed to, that was my target when it came to actually going to the races and where I live, there are, um, there's no other opportunities. Like I, I put out a lot of money to go to the Triple Crown races, and I'm going because I want the experience of it. So that's another concern that I have with changing the schedule because the way that we have structured our calendar is to maximize those dates. And then, like this year with the pandemic, we're seeing it that there's so many um, things that have been affected, so many people who have lost you know, so much because we've not been able to do things the way that they were. So when you do change the schedule, which, I mean, honestly, it's a conversation. I mean, there's lots of reasons for changing it, lots of reasons not to change it. But, it, you know, the way that, that our market has evolved is because the generation like mine and now the generation that's after mine and soon Gen Z are going to be looking for a certain experience, and that's why you've got such an emphasis on Triple Crown Days and why changing the calendar is going to be, uh, it's going to have unexpected consequences, and not like in a negative way, just unexpected um, concerns are going to arise out of it. That That's very true. I mean, I think you can kind of boil it down. My feelings are, that we do a lot of things wrong in racing, and we've made a lot of mistakes in racing. But the one thing that seems to work, the one thing that's that's increased in popularity, the handle for these races has gone up uh, a, a tremendous amount. The the coverage, the the actual exposure that that we get, and and like you said, the experience, the experience of going to a big event. The Triple Crown is one thing that racing kind of does right, and changing it might make it seem like if you just look at it from the racing standpoint okay there's nothing else in our sport like the triple crown there's no triple crown for phillies there's no 
triple crown for turf horses. And and there's been things that have been tried. We had a triple tiara in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you kind of combined uh, the acorn, the mother goose, and the Alabama. And uh, it never really caught on. Um, there's been the Mid-America triple crown was for turf horses at, at Arlington. And... You know, even the Derby and the Preakness and the Belmont undercards, we haven't been able to, you know, each of those undercards features a a turf race at a distance of ground for males. The uh, Woodford Reserve is usually the race that precedes the Derby. Uh, The Dixie is is usually the race that precedes the uh, Preakness. And uh, the the Manhattan is usually the race uh, that... That this year didn't, but uh, usually would precede the um, the Belmont, and you would almost never see a horse run in all three. And it's the same with um, the uh, the Phillies, and that the Kentucky Oaks run the day before the Derby. You have the Black Eyed Susan run the day before the Preakness, and the Acorn, I guess, would be the. The race that was run yeah. on, on Belmont Day. Now, now that actually, you, you would see a, a distances go backwards, and but it's never. There's never been a series of races that were like the Triple Crown, where where they were coveted. I mean, sure, everybody wants to win them. The Strube series that used to be uh, for three turning four year old horses in, in California. But that's, mm-hmm. you know, as um, the Dubai World Cup pretty much killed that, making the, the, the World Cup became the, the focus of three-year-old or older dirt horses uh, in the springtime with their, you know, ridiculously high purse. Uh, it was impossible for the Santa Anita handicap to keep up and the San Fernando and uh, the other, other um, I know the, the Malibu was like the last, you know, was the, was always the opening day feature of Santa Anita, but uh, you know that 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 series has really kind of you know faded away. New York had a handicap triple crown. Yeah, they used okay, to have. I mentioned that. That's kind of you know that's that's. I mean, we 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 generally don't even have real handicap races, anyways. It's 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 la- almost laughable when you look at handicap races, and these are supposed to be our best older horses, and they're carrying weights mm-hmm. less than what two year olds carry. Uh, in maiden races, it's the, the the idea of handicaps has really kind of gone by the wayside, and uh, you know one of the issues is that it's it's getting more and more difficult to actually be able to weigh a horse properly with the 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 raise and the minimum weight for the jockeys in a lot of places it's it's one seventeen or one eighteen uh, outside of apprentice allowances, which you wouldn't get in a handicap race anyways. So. If you do have a really superior horse, you're going to wind up having to weight them 128, 129, 130. And, and that's just not something that most connections are willing to do, or at least not willing to do more than once. E- even Zenyatta, when she was beating up on the same old, um, you know, kind of second rate fillies in California, she, she would beat the crap out of them, but they wouldn't weight her higher than 129. Probably because the trainer said, "Well, if you hire waiter one higher than one twenty nine, we're not coming." <laughs> you know, so well, and that's that's it, why Man Award didn't run past three 
because, you know, and I know this has been confirmed, I think, by other sources, but Vosberg said, I'm going to, you know, fly this horse with 135, 140 pounds because that was the only way that they were going to be able to even out, you know, the chances of any other horse against Man of War at the age of four. And Riddle would absolutely refuse to run his horse, but there's no way. And there are other issues that were involved with running Man of War at four anyway. But, I mean, no owner now would stand for anything more than scale weight and probably anything more than what they would have run at in the Triple Crown anyway, which is 126. Sure. So anything more than 126, and I imagine you're going to have a lot of pushback. I remember when when Sky Beauty won, I believe it was the Hempstead, and carried 130. It knocked her out. It really did. Uh, that that was a huge effort. She beat really good horses, but carrying weight, uh, especially high weight like that, it, it's tough on horses. And um, mm-hmm. and it, it used to be a I, when I was a kid, and I'm not that old, but I remember jockeys. I remember Richard Prevatera. He was a small guy. He actually wanted. I was about fourteen. He wanted to have a fist fight with me, even you know. And I was about six foot two as a fourteen year old, but he was about four foot. Five. He was small. And I remember there'd be races where he would do 105. And they they had a lot of, when I was a teenager, New York especially in the summertime, had a lot of starter handicaps. Not starter allowances, starter handicaps. Especially on the grass. And they, these horses would run every couple weeks. And the great thing about them was that if there was a, a horse that was kind of a, a dominant horse, they would keep picking up weight, and eventually the weight would be enough to the, the gap would be enough where where everyone else would catch up. So you couldn't have what happens sometimes in starter allowances these days, where one dominant horse just keeps beating up on the same horses until no one else will enter against them. But um, I remember there's races there. The guys would carry 107, 106, 105. When when I started training. Um, and I was fortunate when I started training, there was a lot of great jockeys and I was actually lucky enough to be able to, to get them to ride for me in a lot of ways. Uh, my, my main two jockeys when I started was, was Jerry Bailey and Pat Day. Um, so it, it it was a little tougher later in my career when I, I couldn't get guys like Jerry Bailey or Pat Day, but I remember one of the huge, huge um, advantages you had in Kentucky in the spring was if they would write a three-year-old race against older horses, and we don't even carry close to scale weight. The the, the, the what what a three-year-old is supposed to get from a, an older horse in May is like fourteen pounds or twelve pounds, but even then, you could get in at one hundred nine. The older horses would get in one twenty-three. And if you could get Pat Day in 14 pounds, it, it was like your horse started with a head start. And I would always look to run three-year-olds against older horses early in the year. And I, I knew that maybe two or three pounds isn't a big deal. But 14 pounds and Pat Day, just getting Pat Day and giving 14 pounds, you, you felt like you were at an advantage. But when you were getting all that weight and you had Pat Day, it was literally like you started with a five-length head start. And uh, nowadays, you see three-year-olds being having to run earlier and earlier 
against older horses simply because there's not enough horses to fill fields and and that's mm-hmm. that's an issue for another day but um yeah. you know we we don't see the the uh the, the great handicaps and the weight carriers uh, of of the past and uh i i don't think that's that's going to happen anymore and you know hong kong they still have races where there's horses getting 13 14 16 pounds um but again, that, that it's a very much of a closed shop there. There, there's only a certain amount of horses, and uh, it's it's just a little. It's so much different than ev- everywhere else. It's just hard to use them as a comparison. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think with the I mean, average person that actually watches horse racing now, the idea of weighing horse differently is kind of an a novel concept to them. Like they don't have any frame of reference for that. It's like, wait, you're going to give this horse more weight than this horse. And then you have to explain the reasoning to them. And they're like, well, but you know, like that seems unfair to make this horse work this much harder so that this other horse has a shot where they look at other sports and it's like, well, you know, you don't do that to a football player. You don't do that to a basketball player. You don't, you know, start them out at some handicap. So why would you do that to a horse? Why not just weigh them all the same and let them, you know, run the same distance with the same weight? Isn't that more fair? So it's just the idea of weighing a horse differently because of talent. It's like, you know, that's just new to them. And it's not something that is explained unless you're in the sport you know, for a long time, and you see, okay, well, back at this point, we used to do this, this, and this for this reason, and then you would see, like, one pound equals so many links and et cetera, et cetera, and it makes sense, but if you're, you know, new to the sport, you're not going to look at it like that, and so, and especially owners who are like, I don't want you to run, you know, my delicate and, you know, expensive animal, <laughs> True. Under 130 pounds. You know, that just seems like an unnecessary risk. One of the interesting things about handicaps was that, um, I guess it's not really interesting. It was kind of, it was kind of the argument against handicap races about maybe 15, 20 years ago. Bobby Frankel used to complain a lot about it because mostly he had really good horses who were having to give weight. So it, it was, you know, Bobby was Bobby and uh, he was always looking for an edge. And one of the ideas was that handicap races punish success. And mm-hmm. the idea was that, hey, if we weigh the horses too much, they won't run as much. So we kind of got rid of handicaps for the most part. The problem is, Horses don't run as much anyway. So it, it really was one of those um, those issues of, you know, are, are we penalizing our best horses or are we actually making them prove their greatness, especially when compared to horses of years past? In that one of my chief concerns with Zenyatta was always the fact that she showed how great she could be so so rarely, because she wound up racing a lot of races against less than stellar competition. And I, I, I said it a hundred times, I would have loved to seen her try the grass. Um, certainly, I would have loved to seen her at a track like Belmont or a track like Saratoga. Or I, I always thought the Beverly D would have been a spectacular race for her with that closing kick and that, and that wide course. But... Um, 
I guess a lot of times, you know, like I've I've complained about the history of the business being lost, and it's great that Jennifer, you're writing books and bringing back the idea of, uh, you know, like 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 letting people know about these horses because the one thing that business has done a really poor job at is, um, is talking about the past. Hell, we have people nowadays that are getting involved in the game where curling is like a throwback horse, you know. Well, so. That's- like horses of the past past you know there's so many different things you know it's it's sad because there's so many great horses that have been completely forgotten that when you look back and you're like wow look at this horse's record and and look what they've they accomplished and and look what they did and um and yeah yeah you know uh sir barton was not you know (laughs) comparison to to anything that we do today but but it is, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if you ask a baseball fan who Babe Ruth is, everybody knows. And if you ask a, a football fan who Jim Brown was or a, a basketball fan who Bill Russell was, everybody knows. But if you ask a racing fan like you know who, who was uh, Damascus, they might not know. And you know that's 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 a lot uh, less. Uh, that that's going back a lot less years than than. Uh, than Gallon Fox in Omaha, but uh, right. I think there's so much out there uh, history that that I think would interest people if they could they could be exposed to it. I mean, look how successful Seabiscuit the movie was. Um, well, the hard part with stories of historic horses is Seabiscuit is like the the epitome of what a great historic horse story is. But Seabiscuit had a lot of human elements to it. And that's the challenge that I've faced with the stuff that I've done, because, like, I did Sir Barton, and, you know, I had someone comment to me, well, there's, you know, you don't have a lot of the people in the book. And I'm like, well, it's not for lack of trying, but the people, you know, when I was researching the story and going through and, and, you know, reading about his lifetime and the races that he ran and things like that, the people weren't there as much because, for whatever reason, you know, you have a lot more information about Charles Howard and Red Pollard and Tom Smith than you did about Commander Ross and H.G. Bedwell and, you know, and things like that. It's not, you know, Seabiscuit's the perfect mix of, you know, here's Charles Howard and what, you know, what he accomplished and his story, and then here's Tom Smith and, you know, how these personalities came together, the story of Red Pollard and his luck, and in that era of racing in the 30s where the sport was expanding out of necessity, you know, trying to generate dollars because of the Depression, and racing was, you know, was it facing the same... Um, distractions that we have now right so right. it was it was sort of like the only thing i mean there were there were other sports out there i mean the nfl and all these other sports right you know they were going on too, baseball but sure. you know sea biscuit had that human element that people you know really um gravitate toward and you know when you have a horse like man of war man of war you know captures people's imagination for what he did but you know he won almost every race except one Jennifer, I, I, have, I have to pull you up because we're almost out of time. 
But we would love for you to come. We would love for you to come on a, a different show and and, uh, and talk about your books and about uh, <laughs> about the history of racing because uh, I'm sure there's so much that you can share. And uh, I appreciate you calling in today. Yes, and I, I hope do, I answered uh, your question about the Triple Crown, though. I hope yes. that was a good that was a good answer. That, for, that for was your very purpose. very good. Thank you. And, and I want to thank Charlie McCarthy for uh, hanging in there with us. Uh, Charlie, it was great to have you, and uh, we also want to thank John Scheinman, who's on deadline and has to get back, and hopefully we didn't get him in trouble with his editor. But um, we appreciate anyone who listened, and uh, we will be having another show um, this week, uh, later this week, on Anchor. Thanks for everybody listening, and uh, thank you for all my guests, and uh, till uh, next time, I'll see you later. Is the Going in Circles podcast. Hosted by Horseman, Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com.